We are continuing our FAQ series, and the question today is, how do we approach different types of Christians and different denominations? Uh, our passage is Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 19. You can turn there with me. It will be projected overhead. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 19. I'll read this for us. Let's give our attention and reverence, for this is the... Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. This is God's word. Can I just lead us in a quick word of prayer? Let's pray together. Lord, we ask for your help as we go into your word and as we discuss uh, this important question this morning. We ask that you would lead us, that your Holy Spirit would impress the gospel and who Jesus is and what he's done deeper and deeper into our hearts giving rest and nourishment for our souls. Lord, we entrust this time into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our question is, once again, how are we to approach different denominations and types of Christians? This is our FAQ, frequently asked question today, and perhaps it's not the most sexiest uh, FAQ, right? Like same-sex attraction or demon possession, uh, but once, nevertheless, a very important question to tackle. I mean, there's so many different types of Christians in the world. There's so many different types of denominations, so many different types of churches. And it's an honest question that someone submitted through our website. What is to be our approach? And they actually added some more specific questions as well uh, to that question. Um, how does that approach affect our understanding of participation in the Lord's Supper at our church, uh, our communion? How does, that, how does our approach affect church membership, even if maybe you come from a different theological background? How does our approach with different denominations and types of Christians affect partnering in missions? And perhaps uh, an interesting one, how does that affect marriage? Can you marry you know, from different tr- theological traditions and backgrounds? And so that's what the question submission was, and we're going to get right into it. We're going to hit three things. What are the types? First, we have to figure that out. What are the types of Christians? Secondly, what is the approach? And then lastly, what is most important? What are the types? What is the approach? What is most important? So let's get right into it. What are the types of churches, the denominations of Christians? And there's a lot of ways we can go about that. We can look at that question from a historical perspective. We can look at that question from an organizational perspective. Uh, The way we'll do it today is we'll be looking at the tradition of spirituality, Spirituality meaning basically, uh, how does one connect with God? How, how does one experience God and Jesus? And uh, this, this comes from an author and theologian by the name of Richard Foster. He gave uh, six categories. These are, of course, broad categories, and any Christian or any church might belong to one or two of these categories. Uh, but usually we have one or two focuses. And he calls them six streams of spirituality. And we'll go through this relatively quickly. We've actually touched on this uh, not too long ago. 
So we'll go through it real quickly. The six streams of spirituality. The first is the evangelical stream, of which we are a part. Uh, they are primarily focused on the word, on the Bible, and they primarily experience connection with God through studying the Bible, through the hearing, the preaching, and teaching of the Bible. And of course, uh, some denominations that typically are attached to the evangelical stream would be Presbyterians, of which we are, uh, or Baptists, or EV Free, or other non-denominational churches. And if we had to give an easy label to the evangelical church, it might be the thinkers. They tend to be the thinkers, right? the evangelical stream. Secondly, we have the charismatic stream. Uh, the charismatic stream, which tends to focus on praise and spiritual gifts, the exercise of spiritual gifts, charismatic gifts, as some might call it. And that's one of their primary focuses in how they experience connection with God. And of course, uh, Pentecostal denominations like the Assemblies of God uh, would be an example of the charismatic stream. Uh, if the evangelicals are the thinkers, if you want to give a broad label on them, uh, then the charismatics would be the feelers, as you might guess, the thinkers, the feelers. Third, we have the contemplative stream. The contemplative stream, where their main focus is prayer and contemplation. Just think quiet, solitude, lighting candles, right? The, the, having very kind of quiet vibes, contemplative vibes. And of course, historically, this, the monastic movement with monks devoting their lives to God by staying in monasteries, that would reflect the contemplative stream. And if we have the thinkers and the feelers, these guys would be the introverts, right? The introverts. Next, we have the holiness stream. The fourth one is the holiness stream with a focus on virtue and sanctification. Their main way of, their primary way of experiencing God is uh, in growing in personal holiness. A lot of Wesleyan denominations, such as the Church of the Nazarene, would typically belong to this stream. And they would be called the disciplined the disciplined. So we have the thinkers, the feelers, the introverts, the disciplined. Fifth, we have the social justice stream. You know, and as you say these streams, you could probably just imagine already what, what types of churches, what types of Christians these are uh, with, with each of these streams. The social justice stream connects God with God primarily uh, through activism for the suffering and for the oppressed. A lot of mainline denominations, which are typically the largest denominations in the United States, uh, and typically they tend to be a little more liberal theologically. These would be the social justice stream. So if we have the thinkers, the feelers, the introverts, the disciplined, these guys would be the doers, the doers, the activists. And lastly, we have the incarnational stream with a focus on sacrament and liturgy. Uh, their main way of connecting with God is through physical and sensory experiences, such as having sacred, ornate places of worship, or uh, with a focus, a priority on the aesthetics and the arts, and formal rituals, like kneeling. And if you could guess, uh, a t uh, someone that would fit in the incarnational stream would be Roman Catholics, or, or any, really any tradition that would describe themselves as high church, high church. And even in contemporary churches, uh, churches that put a lot of emphasis on the arts would fit in this incarnational stream. And so if we have the thinkers, the feelers, the introverts, the disciplined, the doers, the incarnational stream would be the sensory 
the sensors. They like the sensory. And it's important, once again, to consider these are broad categories. You know, once again, you know, any Christian or any church might not fit perfectly just in one category, but certainly uh, we have uh, we, typically just one or two major focuses in the way we experience and connect with God. And of course, we don't have to be so politically correct and say, well, each stream is equally good, equally valid. We don't necessarily have to say that. However, we do have to admit that we have a lot to learn from every stream. Any, rep- any one stream, representative of one stream has a lot they could learn from the other streams. And also we do have to recognize that, yes, there are theological and biblical reasons for why these streams do what they do, but a lot of it also is, we have to recognize that at least to a smaller degree, a lot of it is due to the way we're wired, right? The the streams to which we are naturally drawn the streams whose characteristics we tend to exhibit. Yes, there are theological, biblical reasons, but a lot of times it is also simply our personalities, the way we're wired, our giftings, and we have to admit that as well. Hence those labels of thinkers, feelers, introverts, uh, and so on. And so, you know, I know that was very quick, and uh, we can talk more about that uh, at a different time. But those are kind of the broad categories that we might use to describe many, the many of the different types of Christians uh, that are in this world. But I do want to spend just a brief moment also uh, to address uh, perhaps a, a small elephant in the room, and that is uh, what about the Roman Catholic Church specifically? Right? We briefly mentioned the Roman Catholic Church in the incarnational stream of spirituality. But, but what are we as Protestants, uh, what are we to do with the Roman Catholic Church. And, you know, there's so many books written on this subject of, of uh, you know, Roman Catholicism versus Protestantism. So much we can say. There's so many differences we could point out. But I just want to say one thing for us and uh, really just stick with that and move on. And, and that is that we stand, quite simply, we as a Protestant church stand with the Reformation. Or quite, quite simply, we do. We stand with the Reformation. Uh, and not because it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, right? We, we stand with the Reformation always. We stand with the principles of the Reformation, which, of course, can be summarized in the five statements, the soul, as, as they are called, the five sola statements, that we believe under the authority of Scripture, we know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Those are the principles, truly, of the Protestant Reformation. And we must admit that the Roman Catholic Church would disagree on each of those five points, quite simply, in their theology, in their practice. And, uh, of course, I say this soberly. I know that there are even people of Roman Catholic backgrounds sitting in our congregation today. Uh, I I had a great meeting with uh, Father Jack from St. Joseph right across the street not too long ago, just introducing ourselves. Uh, And with love and respect, we must still admit that we are very different, that our differences are not small, that even as we share a lot of vocabulary, theological terms like justification and grace, that actually the definitions of those terms are very different. And so, you know, on the flip side, I think we need to make clear that it does go too far. We would be going too far to quite simply say that Catholics are not Christians. That would be going too far. Uh, 
Uh, it would be going too far to say that Roman Catholics cannot be saved. That would certainly be going too far. But I don't think we could ever overstate that we are very different. And we, are diff- we differ on the, some of the most important issues, uh, really issues that, uh, re- regarding the gospel. And so, you know, I know that's kind of a big can of worms that I've opened, and we can certainly talk about it at another time, you know, privately, and I could refer some resources to you if you want to do more further research in that subject. But that's all I'll say on that topic. So that is really uh, just the different types of church, some of the categories that we could be thinking uh, and, and realizing, oh, that's why my Christian friend who's not part of our church is like this, or they, they tend to be more like that. It's because there's different experiences of spirituality. But knowing that, what is the approach? Let's move on to the approach. When we talk about you know, some of our differences, our theological differences, some of our different views, I just want us to avoid two extremes in our approach. The first extreme to avoid is to make too much of our differences. It is certainly possible to make too much of our theological differences. And I, I would say about 20 years ago or so, it wasn't too uncommon to go to a church and to hear in the preaching and teaching of that church, uh, basically the church defining themselves by their differences, defining themselves in their critiques and criticisms of other churches. Right? It wasn't too uncommon to see that. And certainly, reformed churches, uh, of which we are a part, uh, we're a part of, Certainly, Reformed churches are maybe particularly guilty of that sometimes. You know, we have this phrase in Reformed circles called the cage phase. Has anyone heard that phrase before, the cage phase? It's kind of a, maybe it's like an inside joke, a pastor inside joke. But we have this term where when someone learns Reformed theology for the first time, and typically when it's like a, a young man, I'm sorry to all the young men, uh, when a young man learns Reformed theology for the first time, especially when it's combined with a little bit of immaturity, a little bit of arrogance, a little bit of uh, elitism, they just get really combative. You know, they learn this good theology. They're like, wow, I, I didn't realize the Bible says all this stuff. And then they just want to go out and argue. Right? They just want to debate everybody. And the idea, we call it the cage phase because basically those people like that, we should lock in a cage for a couple years, right? Uh, we should lock them in a cage, let them grow in humility, let them grow in maturity a little bit, and then we'll let them out, right, as they've let that theology sink in. And we want to avoid that, right? Well, we don't want any cage phase, folks, at any of our churches, uh, including ours. And, of course, especially when we consider the post-Christian nature of the United States now, uh, it's, very, it's not hard at all to recognize we need to spend way less time criticizing other Christians and other churches and criticizing and critiquing other ways that people experience how they know Jesus and spend a lot more time reaching out to and loving on people who don't know Jesus. I think that's quite clear in this, in this day and age. So that's the first extreme to avoid, uh, that we don't make too much of our differences but you might be able to guess the second extreme to avoid is to make too little of our differences. Naturally, if we care about God, we care about theology. Right? If we love God, I won't say you have to love theology because that's kind of nerdy, right? but you've got to at least care about theology. 
I remember when I was in high school, I had a girlfriend, which I don't necessarily recommend, but I vaguely remember uh, this, this conversation that I had with my girlfriend in high school where she was kind of listing off all the things she knew about me. She was like, I know your favorite color, I know your favorite song, I know all your pet peeves. And I was just like, yeah, you adore me, it's great, right? And I, I was loving it. Uh, but then her face changed as she came upon a realization. And I got this sinking feeling in my stomach as I looked at her face. And then she asked me, do you know my favorite color? Do you know my favorite song? And I had no idea, any of those questions. I had no idea. But can you imagine how lame it would have been of me if I responded to that by saying, but I love you. I don't love the details about you. I don't love the things that you care about. I just love you. That's it. I just love you. Right? That wouldn't really make sense, right? And uh, this is a true story. This is my story, but uh, it, the analogy is actually borrowed from one of my old professors, Michael Horton. Uh, but you get the point, right? We can't say we love God but not care about the details of God, which he has revealed. We can't say we love God and not care about the ways that he operates, the, the, the ways that he is. And certainly, we can't say we love God and not care about trying to get it right. We have to be able to admit that maybe we don't always have it right. But if we love the Lord and we, and we, we view him so highly, then certainly we need to care about trying to get it right of how we view him. And we need to have the courage and the conviction to actually say and stick to what we believe. And we need to have the integrity, actually, to, to know why we believe it. And we can't just ignore our disagreements. However, there is a big but, big but. However, even then, even as we consider uh, very seriously and as very important our theology, there is a balancing act that we need to do. There is a balancing act. And what is that balancing act? And that's quite simply recognizing that not all the theological points are equally important. Right? They are important. If it's about God, it's important. But we have to recognize it's not all equally important. Uh, there are the most important issues, but sometimes we call them the salvation issues. These are the things that if, if you don't believe this, then you can't really say you're a Christian. Right? These are the things that you need to know and believe and hold on to to be saved. The most important things, right? namely the person and work of Jesus Christ. We would say those are the most important things. And then there's a second tier of still very important things, but things we must admit are not necessary to be saved. That even if we, if we disagree on some of these things, it's still possible to be saved, to believe in Jesus. Uh, for me personally, that might be something like uh, the infallibility of the scriptures or uh, a Christ-centered interpretation of the scriptures. These are things that I would even die on a hill for while still recognizing that, we can, uh, that, that even if you disagreed on this, it's possible to be saved. And then there's a third tier of less important issues, right, of varying degrees, things that maybe the Bible is not so explicit on. You know, we call them gray areas sometimes, or things that uh, it, it's just not clear from the scriptures. Something like uh, the days of creation. Inter how do we interpret the days of creation? Or uh, are you young earth? Are you old earth? 
And we talked about that maybe a month or two ago. And I would say certainly those are things that we have much, much, much room for disagreement on. Or even practical things like, you know, should Christians celebrate Halloween? Is it okay for them to celebrate Halloween? Once again, much room for disagreement. We'd call that third tier of varying importance. And at the end of the day, whether we're talking about primary issues, secondary issues, the most important issues or less important issues, and all of it, we need to have humility. Quite simply, we need to have humility. If we have good theology, if we claim to have good theology, biblical theology, it better make us humble. Better make us humble. Because good theology, what does that do? Good theology brings you closer and closer to a knowledge of who God is and what he's all about. And if you're growing in that and you know more of that and that is not making you humble and more and more humble, then there's only two possibilities. Either A, it's actually not good theology or B, it is good theology but you've not made it into your convictions and beliefs. You just made it into head knowledge. It must make us humble. And if it makes us humble, then we can actually even disagree well. We can actually even disagree charitably, graciously, and we can even make room for disagreement. And you know, all this actually makes us realize that denominations actually aren't so bad. You know, in my experience, I've heard some people say, you know, oh, why are there so many denominations in Christianity? It's so terrible. Why can't we just all get along? Why can't we all just agree? But if you think about it, denominations are actually not a bad thing. It's not an ideal thing, right? I don't believe in, in heaven there's going to be denominations. Uh, I think we'll all finally agree and we'll all have it right, perfectly right. But if you think about it, denominations allow for Christians to actually agree to disagree. Denominations actually allow all Christians to say, you know what, you're my brother, you're my sister. I'm not going to say you're not a Christian, but I'm not going to force you into my spiritual style or into my spiritual stream. Or I'm not going to force you on any particular issue to be exactly just like me. We actually have room for disagreement because of denominations. And denominations actually make things a little bit clearer as well. Typically, if you go to any, any random church, when you find out the denomination of that church, typically at least, it should give you an idea of where they stand on certain issues. So, you know, it's not such a bad thing. It's not such a bad thing. But, of course, we want to get to the nitty-gritty of those, some of those specific questions. Communion, membership, missions, marriage. How do we deal with that specifically as we consider uh, some of our theological differences, some of our spiritual differences? I'm going to go over this pretty quick. Uh, but let me get hit first communion. Hopefully you guys all know this one by now. Who can take communion at our church? Can a, can a Baptist, can a Methodist, can someone from a different Christian background take communion at our church? And the answer is yes. As long as you have made a public profession of faith, basically as long as you're a Christian, as long as you've officially, formally said, yes, I'm a Christian, uh, you can take communion at our church. Basically, you have to agree only on the most important things when it comes to taking the Lord's Supper, communion. Easy. What about membership? Can one become a member of Christ Central even if they have disagreements with some of our stances, some of the stances of our leadership, our, our elders and our pastors? Yes, of course, right? We can, certainly. Uh, you can disagree on some things. But I would, for that one, I would say just please take note of the vows, 
right? We've all seen it probably by now. You know, people come up to the front, they raise their right hand, they make five vows to become a member of our church. The first three vows are, are real simple. Basically, they're saying, yes, I'm a Christian. I promise I'm a Christian, right? Once again, the most important things. The last two vows, they go a little bit something like this. They say, uh, I promise to support the church to the best of my ability in its worship and work. And then this, the last vow says, you know, I promise to pursue the purity and peace of the church, within the church. So for that one, I would say, even if you have some disagreements with some of our stances, as long as you can make that promise honestly, that yes, uh, my disagreements with, with the pastor on this issue or with the elders on this issue, it's not gonna prevent me from fully being served and serving this church and supporting this church. And if you can answer yes to that, that it's not gonna prevent you, uh, then I'd say it's all good, it's all good. How about partnering in missions? Can we partner in missions with very different churches, different denominations? For that one, I would say it really depends, but kind of the quick and easy answer is that naturally when it comes to partnering in missions work, there is uh, limited resources always at play, right? Money doesn't grow on trees, right? Uh, our finances, our energy, our, our staffing is limited. And so there always needs to be prioritization when it comes to missions work and partnership. And so naturally, this isn't the only factor, but one major factor in who do we partner with, who do we support even financially uh, when it comes to missions work. Uh, one major factor would be theological alignment. I will say, however, that that's not always the case. Uh, not, a, not too many years back, we had something called Artesia in Action at our, at our Artesia campus where many different kinds of churches came together, including ours, uh, to serve the city of Artesia in community service work. And certainly that was a case where we were partnering with uh, people from very different backgrounds than us. So that's partnering in missions work. And then lastly, maybe this is the most interesting one. What about marriage? Can a Presbyterian marry a Baptist? Can a, a Pentecostal marry a Methodist? For this one, uh, we, want, we, we certainly do not want to be too rigid. It's certainly a wisdom issue. But I would at least say that if your spiritual backgrounds are very different, that you would be very wise to expect much difficulty, much difficulty. You know, when you think about getting married, you're becoming one with another person, and if you're becoming one with another person, you need compatibility, right? And you need to be compatible. And of course, compatibility doesn't mean like superficial stuff like, oh, we like the same TV shows, right? We like to watch Game of Thrones together, right? That's not compatibility, and that's actually a hot-button issue nowadays, actually. That's uh, not compatible. Compatibility is the most important things that you are all about. Right, the things that, 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 that define who you are and what you're all about. You want, to be, you want to see eye to eye. You want to be on the same page on many, if not all, of the, those things. And certainly our faith is one of them. And once again, uh, it's not like we're saying it's not allowed. But we will say that it, it is at least difficult, very difficult uh, to, see, to feel like you are one with someone that you don't see eye to eye on when it comes to who God is and how we experience a relationship with God. And so with that one, I just wanna uh, recommend just exercising caution. You know, relationships are complicated and every, you know, there's a lot of different scenarios. 
at least, at the very least, please exercise uh, caution and wisdom on that one. And so those, that's the approach. And we got into a lot of the nitty-gritty, a lot of stuff said, a lot of different, you have all these thoughts in your mind about different denominations, different types of churches, different situations and approaches. But of course, we want to hone in a little bit and we want to get to what is most important. What is most important? Uh, you may have noticed I didn't really talk about our passage at all yet. Don't worry, we're getting to it now. You know, once again, Christians, we can disagree on a lot of things. We can disagree on many issues. But one thing that we see in our passage from Colossians today is that there is still such thing as false teaching. You know, we could disagree on many teachings, but there is such thing as false teaching and false teachers. And that's who Paul is actually talking about. That's who Paul is battling throughout uh, the book of Colossians and in our passage today. He's battling heresy, basically. And of course, please, please, please do not be quick to accuse anyone of heresy just for disagreeing with you. But we do recognize it exists. And let's look at what this particular heresy looks like uh, in our passage in Colossians chapter 2. In verse 16, Paul says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you. He's, he has the false teachers in mind. The false teachers who are, who are claiming to be Christians and who are trying to influence the Colossian church. And he's saying, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Basically, Paul's saying, don't let these false teachers come up to you and pass judgment on you for all these less important issues about what you eat and what you drink and about certain special days and holy days. He's saying, don't let, anyone, don't let these false teachers, or anyone for that matter, pass judgment on you. And he's saying this to the church that he loves, the church he longs for. And then in verse 18, he actually keeps talking about these false teachers, but it gets a little stronger. He says in verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Right, that word is strong, disqualify. It can also be translated as condemn. Let no one condemn you. Don't let these false teachers and these false Christians condemn you. I like how one Greek dictionary translates that word. They say, don't let anyone rob you of your prize in Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, Paul says. Basically, he's saying, he's saying that these false teachers are coming up to the Colossian church and saying, you know what? It's really great that you have Jesus. It's so good that you believe in Jesus. But also, you need to believe these other things too. You need to do these other things too if you want to be qualified, if you want to be saved, if you want to be accepted by God. That's what the false teachers are saying. You know, and if you think about it, that's what really what cults do, right? Cults come up to you and, and they come in the guise of Christianity saying, oh, we read the Bible too. And then they add all these other things you need to do to be qualified. I remember uh, not too long ago, two very nice ladies uh, rang my doorbell and then I opened the door and they said, oh, are you a Christian? I said, yes, I am. I didn't say I was a pastor. I just said, I'm a Christian. And they said, well, that's really great. That's great that you believe in Jesus, but you also need to know about God the mother. God the mother, right? And then they took out their Bibles, and I swear, they did like these crazy biblical gymnastics. They were like flipping from this page to this page, trying to make an argument for God the mother. And I, I pushed back a little bit, you know, I just said a little bit, and then I basically just said, I think you're in a cult. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, they left. You know, they didn't like what I said. They left. 
And to my embarrassment, you know, the, uh, the two ladies, these two very nice ladies uh, were Latina. But to my embarrassment, I researched that, that cult. It came from Korea, right? <laughs> Koreans are crazy. Koreans are crazy. Um, oh, yeah, by the way, they believe God the Mother is an actual person, too. Not just, like, in heaven, but a, a, a single person is God the Mother, a human being. Yeah, so anyway, I won't talk about that anymore. But that's what, that's what they do, right? That's what the false teachers do. They say, it's good you believe in Jesus, but here's something else. Here's something more you need to do. And you know, really, if you say Jesus plus something else, that really does not equal Christianity. That's, that does not equal Christianity. Paul's saying, do not let anyone do that to you. Do not let anyone disqualify you. And so we have to ask ourselves, too, well, if, if I'm not to let anyone in these false teachers disqualify me, then what qualifies me? What qualifies me? That's probably the most important question I can ask you today. What qualifies you? What qualifies you today? What qualifies you tomorrow? What qualifies you till the day you die? What qualifies you to be called a son, a daughter of God? What qualifies you to be accepted by him, loved by him, cherished by him? What qualifies you to have hope and joy and rest in this life now, but also entrance into eternal life in the life to come? What qualifies you? And we see it, Paul says, the, the problem with these false teachers, they're not holding fast to the head. They are not holding, grasping on to Jesus Christ. And Paul explains a little bit about what that means earlier in our passage, just right before our passage, uh, in Colossians 12, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but you can if you'd like. Colossians chapter, 12, he's, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Having you, having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in his powerful working, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, of your sinful heart, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's in Christ alone. It's in his life, his death, his resurrection alone. Being united to him in all those things by faith alone. It's Jesus and what he's done alone that qualifies you, that qualifies me. Not what I do, not what I can do. It's in Christ alone, and would you let no one disqualify you as you consider what Jesus has done. But church, I need to warn you, and I need to be honest with you. I'm actually not that worried, at least for you guys, uh, this group, this church, when it comes to like false teachers of, the Christ, of, of claiming to be Christians. I'm not that worried about them disqualifying you. I'm not that worried about uh, uh, cult leaders influencing you. I, I hope they never do, but I'm not that worried. But here's what I am a little bit worried about. Here's what I do want to warn you a little bit about. Not so much the, the false teachers, the voices of the false Christian teachers, but I want to warn you of the more subtle voices the non-religious voices, the voices of this world, and ultimately of Satan that tries to make you feel like you're not qualified, that you're disqualified. 
And please ask yourself this morning, what is trying to disqualify you today? What is Satan trying to make you feel like, because I have this or I don't have this, I am disqualified, I am not accepted, I am not worthy, I am not loved? What is that lie that Satan is trying to make you believe? And I'll be the first to admit, it is very easy to say, yes, it's in Christ alone that I'm I'm saved and I have my worth and I have my rest, but it's a temptation to really believe it in the, heart, in the heart of hearts. When push comes to shove, that temptation is real. And church, I wanna, I wanna ask you, encourage you, push you even to hold fast, to grasp onto that head, Jesus Christ, the head of the church, the head of the body. As you continue every day to battle really the preaching of this world that tells you, you are not qualified unless you do this. Oh yeah, Jesus is great, but you also need to do this. That might look very different for many of you. Perhaps for some of our singles, that lie might be that you need need to get married to be qualified. Or for for some of our, our families, for our young married couples or couples who don't have kids yet or who are about to have kids, that lie might be, Having kids, that's what's going to qualify you. Or for those of you who have kids, the lie might be, well, your kids need to be successful. That will qualify you. Or for all of us, the lie might be the size of your paycheck. That's what's going to qualify you. Or your, your comfort, your security, that's what's going to qualify you. Your job performance, that's what's going to qualify you. But let me tell you, church, that is a lie. That is the lie of the false teachers, be it the religious false teachers or the non-religious ones. That it is only in Christ alone that we have our qualification, that we are accepted, that we have our worth, that we have our joy, that we have our hope, that we have our rest. All these other things cannot give you rest. It's true rest for your soul. You know, and if it's Jesus plus something else, if it's, you know, Jesus helping me, to get married, to find a good girl, to find a good man. If, if it's Jesus helping me to have good kids, perfect kids, successful kids. If it's Jesus helping me to make more money, and that's what qualifies me. That's ultimately not Christianity. But let me, let me encourage you with this. Think about how generous is our Lord. How generous Jesus is that when, even when he tells us, none of these things can qualify you. None of these things will ever qualify you. He actually says those awesome words, and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus actually says, seek first my kingdom, seek first to be qualified in in me alone, and seek first to let others know about that and let that be your, your, your battle cry. But all these other things you worry about, all these other things that can never qualify you or give you rest that you care so much about, I'll still give them to you in good time and in good measure. That is our generous Christ. So I want to encourage you all as we consider just that truly as we hold to those truths that it's in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for for the glory of God alone, under the scriptures alone, the authority of the scriptures alone, would you continue holding fast to Jesus, to the head of our church? Would you look, keep on looking, even when it's hard, keep on looking and seeing the price he paid on that cross, the canceled debt on that cross. And would that be what changes everything? 
what allows you to live hopeful, joyful, restful? And would that actually be what causes us to firmly be able to say, no one can disqualify me. No one can snatch me from the Father's hands. What, what God has started, he will carry on to completion. And no one can take that away from me. And even as we consider that, with, with our, as, we, as we gaze upon and stand in awe of the wonder of the love of God, the love of Christ, would that humble us so that we are also, not, we are also very careful to not disqualify others even as we disagree with them. Would that be what the gospel does for all of you this morning? Let's pray.